Good morning, and uh, so glad you all could make it today, um, especially glad that we get to see Kay here. Her smiley face up here always makes me feel good, and um, I'm so grateful that she's back here with us today. Um, we're going to open up today, uh, we're going to start with the actually part three of the fourth commandment. This is lesson seven, and uh, I'm going to open up with Psalm 119, and the section here is verses 81 through 88. Uh, the section, subsection entitled, Cuff. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I become like a wineskin in the smoke, yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life, that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this day, uh, for this uh, wonderful opportunity we have to search your scriptures, to learn more about you and who we are to be in Christ. And um, we just thank you for the, the privilege to know these deep and wonderful truths. We pray that you would drive it deep into our hearts. Um, and we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're still uh, working through the text uh, by way of reminder. I'm going to start today on page three. Uh, by way of reminder, we've been working through um, kind of the redemptive historical trajectory. That's big, a bunch of big words. We've been working through the Old Testament text to see how this concept of the Sabbath is developed from Genesis 2-2 all the way throughout the Old Testament, as we're going to see today, beyond into the New Testament. Uh, and next, the next time we meet, I guess the week after next, we're going to take that and apply it to um, kind of the brief history in American Protestantism and all the way up to us today. So um, this is basically going to be a four-part sub-series for the Fourth Commandment. And uh, today, hopefully, we'll help continue to shed some light on how this concept of the Sabbath um, was uh, not only established and how it grew and developed and became more complex, um, over the course of the biblical text as we go throughout redemptive history. And so I hope today's helpful as we focus on the New Testament. Uh, just by way of reminder, um, as we've seen uh, previously, the Sabbath is a day of worship, a day of mercy and rest. Um, reflecting back on the Genesis 2-2 account, we see that Sabbath reflects the six plus one pattern of creation uh, reflected on the Deuteronomy account, we see it reflects back on Israel's redemption from slavery and the concept of recreation. Um, thirdly, we look at uh, the, it, we look at the Sabbath as a concept of a day of rest for all of our creatures, uh, for all of God's creatures <clears throat> from daily labor. Uh, fourth, we see the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant, specifically the Mosaic covenant. And fifth, we see the Sabbath as a day of holy convocation, uh, a day for public worship and gathering in the Old Testament context for instruction in the Torah, in the law, the first five books. 
Uh, in the New Inter- Inter- Intertestament period, which our version, at least, of the New Testament is relatively silent on, uh, but during the intertestamental period, the Sabbath became increasingly detailed and legalistic in tone. And that's the context in which we see the, the, uh, the New Testament. And as Jesus interacts with the people of his day uh, in Israel, um, the Sabbath had become incre- increasingly detailed and legalistic. The Sabbath in the New Testament era, um, Jesus addressed and clarified the meaning of the Sabbath. And in the Old Testament, um, well, I say well, Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the fourth commandment. Uh, just like he is of all the commandments. But this one, in a special way, um, he gives us a whole new meaning to the concept of work and a whole new meaning to the concept of rest. Uh, he came into the world to finish the work of his father. This is a, one of the most basic points we need to get out of this. Is that he came into the world to finish the work of his father, and on the basis of that work, he is able to give us rest to our souls. You'll notice in John five or John 4, verse 34, I'm going to start in 31, just to give you a little context. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Then in Matthew eleven twenty nine, we hear Jesus say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This concept um, of Jesus coming to accomplish the work of the Father and him giving us rest is tied up in this greater concept of the Sabbath. Christ is fulfilling the Sabbath. The scripture assures us that in Christ there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work just as God did from his. This is huge. Hebrews 4, um, verses 9 and 10. This is the primary fulfillment of the fourth commandment. This is it right here. Um, I'm going to step back because in Hebrews 4, this is an enormously important uh, passage for for the Sabbath concept. Uh, And it's built largely upon the precepts established in Psalm 95. In Psalm 95, God himself warns that those who will not hear and heed his word will not enter into his rest. And the Old Testament points towards a rest that is beyond the seventh day rest. There is a rest for Israel that is to yearn for and to long for a rest to be fulfilled in its eventual, in the consolation of Israel. And so what we see here in Psalm 95 is a messianic, uh, has a messianic sense to it. In Hebrews 4, 9 and 10, the writer of Hebrews speaks of a promised Sabbath rest as a rest of salvation both present and in the future. It's accomplished by the atonement of the Lord and uh, perfectly accomplished for us. The most important issue of Sabbath rest in the New Testament is that we rest in Christ and we rest from our labors, from all efforts to be saved by our works. It's the gospel. That's the fundamental issue at hand here. And um, we cannot work for our salvation. We can only rest in Christ and in him we find total rest. We cease from our labors We rest from our works just as God did from his. The concern of the writer of Hebrews is to the hardness of heart, a refusal to hear and obey, 
which, become, which will become the reason why the souls will not enter the Sabbath rest. The Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ and is tied to belief. And we're going to see that here. Um, you know, although the ceremonial parts of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, um, are no longer enforced, the reality, the, the, for, the shadow and the reality of what this really points toward is. And um, so without, uh, well, let's just go ahead and get into Psalm 95. I'm going to pick this up in verse um, 7b, I guess you would say there. I'm on page four towards the top. To Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And we addressed some of those issues when we talked about, when we showed, when we walked through the development of the Sabbath concept throughout Old Testament history. The writer to the Hebrews picks this up in chapter uh, 3, verses 7 through 4, 13. We're going to read here. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here he's going to quote Psalm 95, um, and I'll skip down to the, the there at the end, they shall not enter my rest. After quoting Psalm 95, here in verse 12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as, it, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, and again he quotes Psalm 95. Then we go to verse 16. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So he is, he is he's retracing like we have done, much so the, the history, the doctrine itself is developed over time through the history of the, of the people as they are living out these deeper concepts that go back to the very beginning, our ultimate goal or telos is that ultimate Sabbath rest. When we enter into God's rest, and he is, he is going back through the scriptures and he is reasoning from the scriptures to come up with this understanding inspired by the Holy Spirit. As we, as we uh, work on down to, uh, towards verse 6 at the bottom of page 4. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience... Again, he points to a certain day, today, saying that, through da that though David, so long afterward, in the word already quoted. And again, Psalm 95. And in verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, remember we talked about the uh, concept of the Sabbath in the period of the conquest and how Joshua didn't completely uh, vanquish the enemies in the promised land, the God's sanctuary. And so the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on that. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest is also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
And he continues on with the rest of the passage. So as we continue to turn our attention to the New Testament, we see uh, all of these things come more and more into view, into focus, and Christ is addressing them very succinctly. Um, Obviously, I want to point this out from the start. We never see Jesus violate the fourth commandment. And the New Testament writers are very... uh, uh, very purposeful in making sure we understand that he never violated it. Um, but he does no problem at all be, you know, breaking down some of the traditions that have been developed around it. And uh, he makes that clear here in two primary texts, Mark 2, and um, we'll see, a, well, that primary text and a few others. In Mark 2, um, in the middle of page 5, Mark 2, verse 27, or 23, we're really going to focus toward 27. This is Jesus, um, the subtitle in your SV anyway, is Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, who are, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest and ate the bread of the presence? which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, I I put here um, underneath, you'll see some ESV study Bible notes on that particular passage because there's a lot going on behind the scenes. But one thing I just kind of point out, um, so Jesus is not only he is not only make, you know proclaiming that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. You also look at it in the sense of Jesus is also our priest. He's going to be our great high priest, right? He can go in there anytime he wants, and he can give it to those who are with him. And technically, they wouldn't have violated it either if this comparison to David was, you know. Um, was being applied to him. But in Mark, uh, notice in Mark 3, Jesus heals a man with a shriveled hand. He suggests that we ought to do good on the Sabbath. In Luke 13, Jesus restores a woman with a disabling spirit, suggesting that the Sabbath is a day of freedom. In Luke 14, Jesus heals a man suffering from dropsy, suggesting that the Sabbath is a day for mercy. He addressed the Sabbath um, in, in various places, sometimes indirectly, but in direct, very much directly in Mark 2. Um, so to be sure, he did not hesitate to peel away some of the things that were added by the scribes of the Pharisees in particular. Um, but he, um, he introduced the Sabbath as a day for doing good and, and not just for doing our ritual duty. Um, he made that, dis- he distinguished between the two. And the, and the gospel writers, like I said, are, 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 they take pains to demonstrate that he never violated the Sabbath. So... If it's good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for us. Uh, that's one thought about it. And do we still need to obey the fourth commandment? Yeah. Um, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. I'm on page six now. He, didn't, he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Christ comes to fulfill the law. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So 
we obey the command, but we also recognize that Jesus has transformed it, right? Um, the command, and, and maybe this command more than any other, um, Christ gives us the substance instead of the shadow of what the, that uh, whole broad development of this Sabbath concept was actually pointing to. Um, and the Sabbath principle, as we've we'll, as seen from creation uh, all the way to the Exodus, all the way to the New Testament, when we start to, to, to see it narrowed down to the Lord's day, it's always pointed in the direction of trust. It's about trust. Do we trust God to provide? Do we trust God to protect? Do we trust God with our very salvation? Um, do we trust that His grace and His... Um, and his sacrifice are enough. Um, Christ fulfilled the fourth commandment by accomplishing the work that God sent him to do. We reflected back on that, what we had mentioned earlier. This is a, this is a, a huge part of the, of the New Testament uh, application, understanding of this, of this doctrine in particular. Um, in John 17, uh, this is from the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom have given, you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I have with you before the world existed. And think again uh, on the cross in John 19, Christ cried out from the cross, it is finished. He had accomplished the work God the Father had given him to do. In John 19, verse 30, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to, um, said I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Subsequently, Christ ascended to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father to rule. We see that in Hebrews 10. And every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly, so he stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he had perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So unlike Adam, um, Christ entered the rest of God after completing the work that the Father had sent him to do. Prior to Christ, no high priest had entered the Holy of Holies and then sat down. Um, they all you know, had the bell on the side of their garment and they had the rope tied around their waist and if the bell stopped ringing, somebody had to drag them out because they were probably going to die. Um, it was a dangerous occupation, no doubt. Um, but um, I want to make sure I, I want to make sure I get this this part right. Um, Christ, however, sat down after doing his work, and he rested. Now, right here, we have to. We, we're going to see a, a huge, a, a huge twist in the development of this doctrine in the New Testament, because when we think about the concept of of, of the of the uh, Sabbath today, 
It's in light of that bigger theme in the New Testament, the already not yet, right? So Christ sat down. He rested from the work the Father had given him to do. Yet he still intercedes for us as our great high priest, right? So there's a sense in which the already not yetness of this New Testament reality that we have in Christ uh, is, is even played out in this doctrine. Um, so the link between Christ and the Sabbath rest is especially evident in Luke's gospel. Um, we're going to look at a couple passages from Luke here. Um, Israel celebrated Sabbath rest once a week. They had an expanded Sabbath rest every seven years and every 50 years of year, year Jubilee. So God commanded a Sabbath rest once a week, once every seven years, once every 50 years. And this is a sabbatical pattern that was kind of, we had talked about this, was pervasive through the, the culture of Israel, right? It was inscribed in their, um, the legal documents of their, of their um, people. And um, think about this in terms of when Christ stands in the synagogue and read from the scroll of Isaiah at the beginning of his public ministry, right? Think about this already not yet pattern. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, Jesus is going to be rejected by those in Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Um, we got to be careful. We just breeze through that last, very last part. It says, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Christ is quoting Isaiah 61. He's proclaiming a year of jubilee. Then he extends a Sabbath. It was being fulfilled in himself. Um, and so in love, he was about, in love, he was about to complete the work that the Father had given him, and he knew this. And by this, he would inaugurate the year of jubilee. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, Christ would usher believers into the jubilee of eternal rest. You see how these concepts are building upon each other from their very seed form in the early parts of the New Testament all the way through the New. And they progressively in, become more rich and, more, and more, there's more depth to them and more meaning and more symbolism. And they all terminate with Christ. <coughs> Thus we no longer worship on Saturday, the last day of the week, but on the Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week when Jesus rose from the dead. Um... So what about Paul? Paul seems to kind of lean away from this compulsory observation of holy days, right? Um, like the early church uh, shifted their gathering for worship to the first day of the, from the first day or from the last day to the first day of the week. So if Jesus tweaked the Jewish understanding of the Sabbath, I'm going to say Paul goes a step further in re reconstituting a proper attitude towards the Mosaic uh, Sabbath. In Romans 14, Paul is talking about. Offer. There's things that are, you know, um, we can agree to disagree on. And surprisingly, Paul puts Jewish holy days in this category. In Romans 14, 5 through 6, he says, One person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gave thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's talking about Jewish observations of holy days. Um, in the early church, Jews and Gentiles, they had to figure out how to live with each other. And um, there were disagreements, especially about issues like what, what they did on the holy days. Um, Paul, in effect, says, hey, don't judge each other over these things. Christ has fulfilled certain aspects of the law. Um, you know, some people are going to honor these special days. That's fine. Others aren't. That's okay. Um, he says much the same thing in Colossians. He's talking about the old written code, written code uh, and aspects of Mosaic law that have been fulfilled in Christ. In Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul is reflecting back on all of these texts of the Old Testament and he is seeing, the, he's seeing God's hand and he's seeing the argument that's being laid out before it and he's laying it out for us. This is what this really means. This is that. Um, so how do we understand the fourth commandment in light of Paul's instructions in Romans and Colossians? Well, um, we keep the fourth commandment by resting in the finished work of Christ. That's the point that the inspired author in Hebrews is trying to make. Um, you know, there's kind of a biblically consistent set of uh, sort of irony here. We strive to enter that rest. Um, how do we do that? By resting from our works as God did from his this is the Sabbath rest that remains, that we trust in Christ, we believe in Christ, and we rely on Christ instead of our own strength. This is the, the truer, deeper concept that's going on behind Sabbath and what it was pointing to. Um, we'll talk briefly here about the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Obviously, in the history of the church, we've had some discussions about this. Um, you know, although all the Ten Commandments are still binding, uh, they've all been deepened and transformed by Christ. Uh, even within the Reformed tradition, there's some disagreements um, over uh, how we label it. Is, is, is it really the Christian Sabbath, or is this the new concept of the Lord's Day? Um, consider this, for example, the accounting of the resurrection in the Gospels. Mark, Luke, John all address this issue in their, in their uh, addressing of the, of the concept of the, the, the words here, you'll see in your ESVs translated on the, on the, one, or on the first day of the week. Um, but, and I want to be really careful here. We've got to be really careful. When we, I don't want to come across as though I'm trying to correct the ESV. I'm not. Um, but I think one of the things that some of these commentators have pointed out is that the way that the Greek is written here, the, the, technically the, the wording is on the one of the Sabbath. Okay? So it appears that the early church is already recognizing Sunday as the Sabbath day plus one. If you looked at the actual, if you looked at the Greek there, it's translated, in, it's most literally for the on the one of the Sabbath. Our English translations often will put on the first day of the week, which is Saturday. So there's, it's not incorrect at all, but there's something that we miss in the way it's translated, we can miss. It's on the one of the Sabbath. They understood this. They still thought in Sabbath terms, right? 
Um, this is on the, on, on, on the one of the Sabbath, the first day after what they had traditionally understood to be the Sabbath. Uh, you see it in John 20, you see it in Luke 24, you see it in Mark 16. They all have this uh, language in here on the first day of the week. This is what's really going on. It's on the one of the Sabbath. Um, and we see this played out in the rest of the New Testament. Look in um, 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside to store it up. Acts 20, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. In Revelation 1.10, we see actually mentioned specifically to the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a sound, a loud voice like a trumpet. So we see evidence in the New Testament itself of this transition in the early church from observing the historical uh, Sabbath as it had been inscribed in the Old Testament code uh, to this new understanding has been transformed in Christ and a recognition of the importance of the resurrection and the fact that now the Sabbath is the Sabbath plus one. It is now the first day of the week where we celebrate Christ. Um, this is going to lead us into a new covenant Sabbath. Um, we're going to reflect again on uh, how Christ is the, is the second Adam, is the new and true Israel. He's come and he has obeyed where Adam and Israel both failed. Uh, he has established but not already inaugurated his kingdom. So we see the already not yet concept. And um, right here to page, the bottom of page nine, uh, we see how this is uh, moving us forward uh, more and more towards the ultimate reality of the eschatological Sabbath, the true, ultimate, eternal Sabbath. Um, that we will, we, we will enter into with the coming of Christ in glory. Um, note that we think about it this way. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. How long was that seventh day? I mean, it's not a 24-hour period. It's eternal. Um, it's an eternal Sabbath, and, um, and it's what we were designed to enter into. Had Adam... And Eve passed the test in the garden. Eden, the garden of Eden was not heaven. It was not that true eschatological rest. They still had that hope before them, right? And so had they, had they achieved that, they would have entered into God's eternal rest, right? But now Christ has come to provide a way for us to enter into that eternal Sabbath rest that we are always created for. Right, And the ultimate goal of that Sabbath rest, the reward of that Sabbath rest, is that we are in personal union, communion with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, through Christ. That is the blessing, to be in His presence. We, that's how we get through the flaming sword at the gate of Eden. That's how we get through the flaming sword of the gates of the Promised Land. That's how we get in there. Christ entered it for us, right? And so... Um, there's, there's much going on here. You can read for yourself here on page 10 about the Lord's Day in the early church and how it, uh, it, it uh, progressively became uh, identified as the Lord's Day uh, for Sunday versus what had been the traditional understanding of the Jewish Sabbath, which is celebrated on the Saturday, and how it became increasingly important for the early church to make those distinctions. You see it with Justin Martyr and the, the Didache, with Ignatius, 
Um, I like how B.B. Warfield put it. He said, Christ took Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. Um, and I'll leave you with this last little bit here. Probably the most, um, the most important reformed uh, treatment of the Sabbath concept is in the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 20, um, number 7 and 8. Um, I've got, a, I've actually listed it out here on pages 11 and 12. Um, you'll see at the, po- at the top of the page, 7, at the bottom, 8. And I've taken the proof texts that are in there. The, the, um, um, the PCA uh, website actually shows you the proof text. So I've kind of cleaned those up so they're easier to see. And if you read through these proof texts in the Westminster Standards and you, you read through these texts, you're going to see some of the very same texts, many of the same texts that we've been going through. The, the Westminster Divines were looking back through the whole of Scripture and they were reflecting on this whole concept of the covenant from Genesis 2-2 all the way through. And they were making an argument and reflecting the argument that was being made by the New Testament authors before them. And they were looking at the scriptures and they were, they were enshrining the argument, let's say, in their proof text. They're showing you step by step how they're reasoning through the scriptures to come up with these texts. And it should be reassuring to all of us. Um, I'm grateful for it. Um, they took great care uh, to craft those, uh, and they're very helpful. And so you can read through the, 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 script, the proof text that I included there, as you will. There's also a reference here to the Heidelberg Catechism and the Second Helvetic Confession, uh, <clears throat> which were other Reformed documents of the period that have, several, have slightly different emphases about the way that they approached the doctrine. And we're going to see some of that played out as we as we discuss this in the next um, next time we get together, moving forward uh, into the New Testament or into our uh, you know our day and how this uh, what this means for us. But I thank you guys so much uh, for being here. Um, it means a lot. Um, I hope that this is um, helpful for you. If you ever have any questions, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. If you need me to send you an email, I can send you all the notes that we've been handing out every week. The, video, the audio lectures are up on uh, the church website, and we're doing our best to try to get those uploaded as, as quickly as we can for those who can't make it. Um, but I'm always available here, here to help. Um, anybody, any, any questions? You're good. Thank you. All right. I'm going to close this out real quick with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much um, for this privilege to, to read your word, to learn about you to learn about ourselves and who we're called to be in Christ. And we pray that you would help us in that way, that we would uh, come to understand the, the deep, rich truths of your word. We love you. We thank you for all things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.